0: The following audio is from the Springs Church. More information about the Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, church. Welcome in the name of Jesus Christ. We're very happy that you're here. If you're a regular with us, welcome. If you are visiting, we're so glad to have you. And if you're joining us online, welcome this morning. I also want to say Happy Mother's Day to everyone. Congratulations on being a mother, congratulations on putting up with us, I'm saying us, our our children, and loving, um, showing the love of God the way you do. Thank you very much for that. We here at the Springs are a church that's being transformed to the image of Christ so that anyone can find their way to God. And we do that in three ways, by gathering in the name of the Father like we do this morning. By growing to the image of the Son, like we do in our connections groups, we want people to be connected in connections groups and fellowship and grow together, and by going in the power of the Spirit, and we do that in lots of ways here. And so, you're most welcome here, we want you to be transformed into the image of Christ so the world can find its way to God. We are in a sermon series called The Gospel According to Moses, Good News and the Torah. We're in the book of Numbers. We'll begin in chapter 23, 7 and 8, 19 through 22. Numbers says this. Then Balaam spoke the message he had received from God. He said, Balak brought me from the land of Aram. The king of Moab sent me from the mountains to the east. Come, he said, put a curse on Jacob's people for me. Come. Speak against Israel. But how can I put a curse on people God hasn't cursed? How can I speak against people the Lord hasn't spoken against? God isn't a mere human. He can't lie. He isn't a human being. He doesn't change his mind. He speaks, then he acts. He makes promises. Then he keeps them. He has commanded me to bless Israel. He has given them this blessing. And I can't change it. I see no wrong in Jacob. I don't see any wrongdoing or misdeed in Israel. The Lord, their God, is with them. The shout of the king, is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. Let's pray. God, as always, we give you thanks for your word. Your ancient words to us, ever true, meant to change us. And so God, this morning, as we hear your word, Give us ears to hear, hearts to follow, eyes to see, lives and bodies that will obey. And God, this morning, I ask for the gift of preaching. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Nostalgia. Nostalgia is a funny thing. I remember growing up, and loving the summers when we would go to visit my grandparents in Alabama, and particularly the trips in the car. I just have really fond memories of driving all the way from Oklahoma City to Dothan, Alabama, and just this family time to be together with family, this long road trip. But nostalgia is a funny thing, and memory is a funny thing, because now as I'm older, and I really think about it, those road trips were horrible. I mean, literally the only thing to do, this was in the 80s, was just to look out the window. No Game Boys, no, it was just no phones, no nothing. And I remember these family times that were so great, they weren't so great because me and my two brothers were crammed three across in the back seat, and it's like, why are you touching me? Don't touch me, don't touch me. And my brother's driving me crazy and I'm about to punch his lights out while my mom's looking. If you touch him again, I'm gonna wear you out. And maybe we had air conditioning, I don't remember, but I don't, I don't know if we really, I remember the windows being down at times and it's hot. We probably did air conditioner, but you're in the back and it wasn't that good back then. I remember it being really good, but if I think about it, Those road trips were not really great. They were two days long. Or if you have a friend that remembers something with nostalgia in a better way than you do. I've told this story before, but when I was in college, I went to Kenya, and I was in the city of Mombasa on the coast of Kenya. And I met a friend uh, who we started hanging out together. We were doing some Bible studies, a mission trip. And this friend, he was a cross-country runner, which most, a lot of Kenyans, they're famous for running great distances and winning marathons and things like that. And I discovered that he had never been snorkeling. He'd lived right by the Indian Ocean his whole life, but he'd never been out in the ocean. So I paid for us to rent some gear, and I was like, we're gonna go snorkeling. So we go out, and the tide is kind of low, and we're snorkeling around, and he's not great at swimming, but I thought, uh, He's a marathon runner. He'll be fine. So we're going around and things are going well. And then as we're snorkeling, the tide really begins to rise. And we find ourselves out a little too far. And it's very deep where we can't touch. And so this friend of mine, we kind of come up and I see he's struggling. And he's kind of trying to doggy paddle and paddle and and, and be in the water and just not go under. And then all of a sudden I I said, are are you okay? Okay. And he says, Help me. Well, we're pretty far out from the coastline. So I kind of go over, and he puts his arm on my shoulder. And then I said, Oh, no, are you okay? And then all of a sudden he says, Save me. And he wraps his arms and legs around me, and we both just sink. So I throw him off of myself. I try to help him back, and finally, We get back to shore, and the next day, we're talking, and he's remembering this experience. And he says to me, yesterday, when you took me snorkeling, yes, that was amazing. (laughs) I was like, I don't think you remember this correctly. You almost killed both of us. Nostalgia is a funny thing. The prophets use nostalgia. In Jeremiah, it says this He says, Here is what the Lord says I remember how faithful you were to me when you were young. You loved me as if you were my bride, you followed me through the desert. The prophet Jeremiah seems to be recalling something or appealing to something that Israel believes about itself. It has nostalgia, particularly when it talks about the wilderness wanderings or going through the desert. And this is what he says. I remember how faithful you were to me. Now, it's not that God is lying here or that that Jeremiah is lying, but what he's doing is that there seems to be that you can kind of follow this narrative is, as Israel goes along, what they remember about the wilderness wanderings has nostalgia for them. It's like the good old days. We do this all the time, right? Oh, those were the good old days. And we remember them to be perfect and pristine. He says, You are faithful. In fact, he's appealing to this sense of what they remember about themselves. It's like, yeah, we did love you. We were so faithful to you. Just like in the wilderness. Hosea does this as well in chapter 2, 14 through 16. He says, this is after, uh, he does his very famous, you know, let justice roll down from the mountains. And then he goes on, he says, so now I'm going to draw Israel back to me. I will lead her to the desert. There I will speak tenderly to her. I will give her back vineyards. I will make the valley of Acre a door of hope for her. Then she will love me as she did when she was young. She will love me just as she did when she came up out of Egypt. You get this sense that from Hosea that the wilderness wanderings is seen as this romantic period of God wooing Israel like a couple and you look back in your dating life or your spouse or your loved one your partner looks at you and and, and, and woos you in and you have these idyllic romantic memories Because according to Hosea the wilderness is a place where Israel fell in love with Yahweh that's how Israel remembers it. There's a tradition in which Israel remembers the wilderness with nostalgia. They remember it as a love story in the wilderness, romantic time where Israel was head over heels for God, a time where Israel's faithful to God. And the prophets use this memory for a purpose to say, now you're not. But remember when you used to be. But not all the prophets remember it this way. In fact, Amos. Amos, actually, mentioned earlier, it's not Hosea that has the famous let justice roll down. It's Amos that after he says let justice roll down, he goes on to say this. People of Israel... Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert? And they answer back, yes. And he says, actually, no. Yes, you did bring sacrifices and offerings, but you honored the place where your king worshipped other gods. That's actually what happened. You have carried the stands the statues of your gods were on. That The statues of your gods were on. And you have lifted up the banners of the stars you worship as gods. You made all of those things for yourself. Did you not sacrifice in the wilderness? Yes, we did. But you, it wasn't this romantic period where you were faithful to me and you love me. You sacrificed to other gods. You did not love me. You weren't faithful to me. There's this thing that psychologists call. I'm no psychologist. I just read about these things. It's called rosy retrospection. Sometimes happens with nostalgia. Rosy retrospection is this idea that memory, you have a biased memory that causes people to remember past events as being more positive than they actually were. And it happens quite often. We do this a lot with our past or things that we're proud of. Maybe we remember a vacation or remember a time. We think, man, that was... And it's funny how our brains work. Not everything is like that. But we have rosy retrospection. And it's funny because Israel does this with themselves about the wilderness wanderings. They look back and they think, man, we were faithful, we were good. But even in the book of Numbers, they look back not only at the wilderness wanderings, but they look back to Egypt and they say this. Some of the Israelites are saying to Moses, You have brought us up out of the land that has plenty of milk and honey. And you have brought us here to kill us in this desert. God is taking them out of Egypt and taking them to the promised land of milk and honey. But when they get into the desert, this is what they say. Remember they cried out in Egypt? But then when they get in the desert, what do they think of Egypt? Do they cry out anymore? They say, no, take us back to Egypt. That was such a great time. The land of milk and honey We had meat and fish, we had melons and we had fruit and we had all of these great things to eat. Now we're in this wilderness and we're gonna die. The book of Numbers gets its title because it begins with this census. God gives a command to take a census of all the people. He gives Moses a a command to take a census of all the people, and it's a list of people who are going to enter the land. It is a census of all the people that have come out of Egypt that are about to enter into the land. It is an accounting or a numbering that says, this is who we are. The odd thing about the book of Numbers is they take that list of all those people and say, this is who we are. This is who's going into the land. But the ironic thing about the book is that none of those people that are on that list ever see the promised land. Not, it, not one of them. Because while Israel remembers its time in the wilderness, it's the time of loving God and being faithful to God, the book of Numbers, it has an alternative version of what Israel actually remembers. So as they enter this land, as they enter this wilderness, they encounter a few issues. And if you remember, when they encounter these few problems and how they're going to deal with these problems what do they do? They take all the gold that they had, that they've taken out of Egypt, they melt it down, and they form for themselves an idol. And they worship that idol. It's a kind of in the book of Numbers. Then Moses and Aaron, in Numbers 20, they have this very unfaithful moment that actually the problem is is that God says, Moses, you did not trust me. And Aaron dies, and Moses gets to look into the promised land, but he never gets to go in. He doesn't get to go in. What's interesting about it, and scholars and people have noted this, is that there's an overlap, there's some parallel between, in the book of Exodus, and the book of Numbers. And they tell some of the same stories from the wilderness wanderings. But the difference is, and that has been noted, is that Exodus tells the story and the stories are kind of neutral. They're positive at best or they're just neutral at worst. They're kind of these positive stories or this is just this is what happened. But Numbers, Numbers tells a different story. It is not a positive story. And so in the book of Exodus, Miriam has this song of praise to God. But in the book of Numbers, where Miriam comes, is it tells of Miriam and Aaron's rebellion against God. It's interesting. Miriam comes up in both, but for different reasons. And psychologists call this dissonance theory. And this is what that means. Dissonance theory is that people engage in this form of psychological adjustment in order to justify their actions after an experience threatens the way they view themselves. So it's common, not always common, but it's not out of the question that this happens. That you remember something differently and sometimes you remember something differently because if it threatens the way you view yourself, you might remember the thing differently. So Israel remembers us, we were faithful, we love God, but in reality Numbers says, wait, what? Are you kidding me? The book of Numbers says this. It says it not only to Israel, but to us today. The book of Numbers says, let's be realistic here. Let's be very realistic. We have not been faithful. Let's just be real. None of us can look back with nostalgia and say, oh yeah, I got it. We want to live... And remember things in an idyllic world. We do this about all kinds of things. But the reality is, the book of Numbers says, let's be realistic, it was never really that way, was it? You never really loved God that way, did you? You never were that faithful, were you? In other words, this is kind of an immature view of oneself. I was talking to Eli about this. He gave me permission to, because he's kind of come through this, and he's given me permission to tell this story. When Eli was a little bit younger, I remember asking him after a soccer game. I was like, Eli, how did you feel like you played? He was like, oh, I, I played good. And in my mind, I'm thinking, no, you played horrible. And I think once or twice I told him so. Probably to my detriment. I probably shouldn't have done that. I was like, no you, no, you didn't play good. I was trying to get him to be a little bit reflective. And he couldn't. He couldn't do it. Now he's come out of that. He's matured a little bit. Now he asks me, Dad, how do you think I played? And he can take the good with the bad. He's able to look at himself in the mirror. Now I said, how do you think you played? And he's like, ah, This is part of maturing. I think that a mature view of oneself is that you can look, your, look at yourself in the mirror. You could be honest about who you've been and about who you are. And the book of Numbers is a long, hard look in the mirror for us, for Israel, in order to show Israel who they have really been and the book of numbers is also a long hard look in the mirror for us to show us who we are and how we've really been but once we come to the realization once we become to this mature view of ourselves Once the nostalgia goes away and we can be honest and we can really look at ourselves in the mirror and understand who we are, it can often lead, that mature view of self can lead to an unhealthy view of self. It often leads many to feeling guilty. And this sense of guilt is evoked often by a fear of judgment. In fact, we can feel to be made like fugitives. And in trying to change, we experience this lack of power to really change. We feel like we try and we try and we try, but it's never, ever good enough. It's almost as if we're diseased or cursed just to be this way. It's as though there's a deep need within us to justify our life and to convince ourselves and others that we are worthy of living. Thus life becomes this unending chore to do. We can never do enough. And so we're tempted to put those rose-tinted glasses back on that deceive ourselves that we may put those rose tinted glasses on and think of ourselves more highly than we should because we think maybe we're better than we are but we know we can't go back to that anymore but the other thing that it does is this and this may be even more. For some of us, it's guilt, but I think for more of us, it's this this unhealthy view of self that leads to shame. Because shame is not simply about what you do, it's about an inner disposition of who you are or who you think you are. So inside, there's this feeling of emptiness, a void an ache that resides somewhere down here. And questions come up. Who could love me? How could God love me? How could anyone love me? And this guilt and shame leads to unhealthy views of ourselves. So on the one hand, we have this rose retrospection that we remember things with nostalgia and we remember ourselves as better than what we actually were. But then we come to this mature reflection of ourselves and really see ourselves for who we are. This could lead to guilt and this could lead to shame And to dwell in those two things is a very unhealthy place if you're dwelling for too long. But the good news of Numbers is found in chapters 21 through 24. In chapters 21, Israel is about to attack the Moabites, and Balak, the king of the Moabites, hires Balaam, who is a prophet, to go and put a curse on Israel. What's interesting that I learned this week about Balaam is that not only was he a famous prophet in Israel's stories, there's records of Balaam outside in extra-biblical text that he was a very famous pro- prophet even for the Moabites and for other ancient people. So the king of the Moabites sees this vast array of people camped outside, just across from the Jordan. And he gets this word back, and he becomes afraid. And so he says, hey, I got an idea. Let's go hire this Balaam guy who's a prophet. It's very clear he's a prophet. It's very clear that God listens to him. And he can, he can work his magic, and he can go put a curse on the Israelites before they attack him. And in Numbers 23, 7 and 8, 19 through 22, Balaam actually comes to, back to the king, the Moabite. And he is a prophet, for sure. But he says this. It says that Balaam spoke the message he had received from God. He said, Balak brought me from the land of Aram. The king of Moab sent me from the mountains in the east Come, he said, put a curse on Jacob's people for me. Come, speak against Israel. But then Balaam said this. But how can I put a curse on people God hasn't cursed? How can I speak against people the Lord hasn't spoken against. God, he isn't like you and I. He's not just a mere human. He can't lie. God, he isn't a human being. He doesn't change his mind. He speaks, then he acts. He makes promises, and then he keeps them. He has commanded me to bless Israel. He has given them his blessing, and I cannot change it. Because God sees no wrong in Jacob. I see no wrong in Jacob. And because God doesn't see any wrongdoing or misdeed in Israel, I see no wrong or misdeed in Israel. The Lord, their God, is with them. The shout of the king is among them. This is the God that brought them out of Egypt. God sees no wrong. In Jacob. He does not see any misdeed in Israel. This is because of God's love for us. It is not that God cannot see your flaws or your shame, it is that He chooses to see you and love you in spite of it. said something very profound in her communion homily today. She said, a mother's love is the most perfect thing this side of heaven. I saw this funny meme today. Being a mother is very difficult. Being a parent's difficult but being a mother's difficult. And this meme that I Thought and my wife thought was funny, Said here's the description of a southern mother. When a mother from the south says to her child, what did you say? She is not asking that child to repeat what they said. <laughs> when a mother says, what did you say? You should interpret that. You better be ready to make, meet your maker. That's what that means. But here's why a mother's love is like God's love. Here's why moms are amazing. It's because moms see all the flaws in their kids. Even when their kids can't see it, even when their kids aren't mature enough to recognize who they really are, the moms know exactly who they are. And here's what's amazing about it is that they completely and totally love them anyway. One of the things, several things that we need to learn from the book of Numbers is this. We are less committed to who we are than God is. And there's two ways that works. The first is that when we want to see ourselves through rose-tinted glasses, God Sees us as we truly are. And second. When we come to see ourselves. As we truly are. Sinful. And unfaithful. God sees no wrongdoing. In us. it's not that god can't see or doesn't see those things is that he sees it and in spite of all that he loves us the good news of numbers is this is that god gives us our identity in spite of who we think we are and in spite of who we actually are And this is who you actually are. This is who you and I actually are. We are God's beloved. That's who you are. That's who He is. The book of Numbers begins with this census, this numbering. And they lay it out at the beginning. They say, this is who we are and they hold up a mirror, and we see our guilt and our shame. But the good news is, is that at the end of the book of Numbers, it ends with the senses. and these are the people that will enter the promised land. These are the people that, after just before that, the prophet Balaam says, "I see no wrongdoing." How can I curse those who God's blessed? It's a census which says this. This is who God's people really are. This is who you are. You and I are God's beloved. It's who you are. Stand, sing.